Grab a Bible and open up to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to look at chapter 15, verse 26, through chapter 16, verse 15 this morning. And I would invite you to stand again as I read this passage. <clears throat> John 15, starting in verse 26. And Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no longer, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would declare to us the things that are God's that you would help us to understand truth and all truth. We believe that you are present and active here and among us. And we can't understand your word naturally. We need a supernatural touch, a supernatural interpretation, a supernatural understanding, a supernatural encounter with you, the living God, this morning. And so we open up our hands you open up your hands with me? We open up our hands in a posture of, of releasing our agenda, our opinions, our perspectives. And Lord, we want to receive from you. Holy Spirit, would you supernaturally help us to receive your word, to trust your ways, and to live in the midst of your will as we do your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. Happy Veterans Day. Thank you those who have served our country and made it so possible for us to gather and worship God with freedom. Amen. A round of applause for anyone who has served this weekend as we remember you in your service. And the very act of doing that in a church service creates 
tension for me. Because we're in America, but not of America. Now, last week I was a little bit animated about like... um, kind of American military and the gospel. And there's a reason for that. It's because I've been going up north doing a little bit of deer hunting. And when you drive out of the city, well, it's in the city too, but this, like, I feel so comfortable in northern Minnesota out in the woods. But as you start to drive into northern Minnesota around deer season, you see a whole lot of guns, a whole lot of flags, and sometimes you see images of soldiers kneeling at crosses. And it makes me uncomfortable. And so last Sunday, I drove back down on Saturday night from deer hunting, and I saw all these images, and, and it made me uncomfortable because the reality is we're in America, but not of America. And so I'm conflicted every time of year, like around Memorial Day and Veterans Day, we have people in our church who have served, and again, thank you, thank you, thank you for serving. And then we have people who want the church to, to embrace like a Veterans Day celebration and to do some patriotic songs. And, and I'm like, I can't do that. I can't do that. Now, I can be grateful for the country that I live in. All of us can be grateful for the country that we live in. Whether you're an American citizen or not, we have some non-American citizens in our midst. Thank you for being here. I don't know what brought you to America, but we're glad that you're here in this church. Some of us are American citizens. Some of us aren't American citizens. But the reality is we are currently in America right now, but none of us are of America. Even if you're an American citizen, if you are a follower of Christ, your citizenship is first and foremost in heaven. And so even this reality of thanking our veterans, it should create tension for us as Christians because, as I said last week, I think we can be grateful for America on one hand, but we can't connect that with being a follower of Jesus. The two actually have to be disconnected, and there's some tension in this. And so we should be grateful and we should be able to thank those who have served and support those who have served and and be grateful for the blessings that we have. But keep in mind that belonging to the kingdom of God is far superior than belonging to the nation of America. Amen? Far superior. And when we gather as a church, we have people who aren't even American citizens and we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we belong to the same nation, the kingdom of God. That is our primary identity. And so Jesus here, and we're doing a three-week series on uh, John 16, John 15, 18 through John 16, 33. And Jesus is teaching in this context that we are in the world, but not of the world. And because of this reality, this already not yet reality, we experience tensions that we should work to recognize and embrace. And so last week we did part one and we talked about this in in John 15. Look at John 15, verse 18 and 19, in case you weren't here last week to get a little more context. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Regardless of what you think about America and politics and belonging and the army and, you know, conservative politics and liberal politics or somewhere in the middle, more neutral politics. The reality is we do not belong in the world. We belong to a different kingdom with a different ethic, with a different culture, and this creates some tension in us. And so we're spending these weeks trying to recognize what these tensions are so that you and I can in a healthy way, engage the world. We're in the world, but not 
of the world. And so how can we engage the world in a healthy way without selling our souls to it? To any country, to any political party, to any movement outside of the movement of the gospel of the work of Jesus Christ. And so the tension this morning that I want to work to recognize is the tension of power and persecution. Power and persecution. How do these two work together? In context here, what Jesus is saying in John's in John 13 through 17, I've said this before, it's, he, he's preparing his disciples for his death. This is the night before he's crucified, John 13 through 17. It, it's, uh, it, it's his parting words to them. He's preparing them for his death and then his resurrection and his eventual departure. And so they're dealing with separation anxiety. Throughout the text, they're, they're worried about Jesus leaving. You look at verse 26 of chapter 15. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he's saying, yes, I'm going to leave. He's preparing them. Look back at John chapter 13, verse 33. Next page over. John 13, 33 says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's preparing them for his ascension to heaven. Look at verse 18 of chapter 14. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Look at verse 25 and 26 of chapter 14. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. I'm here in your presence, physically present among you. I'm speaking these things, but he's preparing them for his departure. They're feeling separation anxiety. Verse 26, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He's preparing them for his death and departure. And what he's doing here in this text now is reminding them that they will experience persecution. He's preparing them for it, but also that they have the power of the Holy Spirit, the one whom he will send. Look at verse 20 of John chapter 15. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He's preparing them. If I was persecuted, and was Jesus persecuted? Yes. Crucified? For what? For loving? For serving? For not playing by the operating system of the world? By not using political power, religious power, to get his will done? but laying down his life. And so he's preparing his followers, specifically the disciples, many of them who are martyred, persecuted to the point of death for their faith. But then us, 2,000 years later, he's preparing us to be ready. To be ready. There's a passage that says, it shouldn't be a surprise to you when fiery trials come among you. And so we live in this tension in America, but not of America, where we've had incredible freedoms. And, and those freedoms haven't, like, they're not necessarily as glossy and glamorous as some people from majority culture may think. Like, if you talk to somebody who hasn't lived majority culture in America for centuries, they'll be like, or for generations, decades, they'll be like, well, yeah, it's great to be an American if you're of a majority culture. And, and sometimes even if you're not majority culture, like, maybe you found your way, but other people have a really hard time. And, and so there's this tension 
We're in America, but we're not of America because we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And so Jesus wants to prepare us. Yes, he's speaking specifically to his disciples, but this applies to us 2,000 years later on a different continent, in a different language, in a different culture. This word is still living and active. And look at what Jesus says in John chapter 16. He says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. If you have false expectations or unrealistic expectations, if you think that the Christian life is going to be victory after victory after victory, power and prominence and prestige and comfort and ease and and you getting your way, when pressure comes, when persecution comes, it's likely you will fall away. When, When things don't quite match up, And Jesus says, I'm preparing you so that you won't fall away. And then verse 2, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. And he's speaking specifically here to the disciples about about what is about to happen to them. And this is happening to our brothers and sisters around the world, even here and now today. We're worshiping Jesus as outlawed. People are thrown into prisons. Underground churches are shut down. It says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. This is speaking specifically about the Jewish religious leaders who were then persecuting and killing followers of the way, Christians who were followers of Jesus. And, and, and they think they're, they're, they're honoring God by snuffing out this movement of people who are following Jesus as the Messiah. It says, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Their religious zeal is misplaced. Their using of political power and religious institution and systems is misplaced. They're misguided. He says, but I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. He goes on to talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, right? Like part of this walking with Jesus is Jesus knows when to tell us things, when to just wait, like that, that, that information is for later. And he says, but, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. That separation anxiety, Jesus, don't leave us. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. How many of us are just like, if only God would just show up in physical form, if only Jesus was here among us, if only I didn't have to listen to that pastor ramble on, but I could listen to Jesus' sermons, amen? Like if only Jesus would show up at my small group, if only Jesus would show up in my hour of need, in physical form, if only I could touch him and see him and hear him. And and Jesus himself is saying that it's actually to our advantage that he goes away and to the disciples who are walking with him and doing life with him. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, he will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Sin is missing the mark. It's missing the man of God, 
Jesus the Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is convicting and drawing people to Jesus. He's opening up their eyes and he uses us to do it. So we work as evangelists and neighbors and witnesses to the world. We love people. We proclaim the gospel to people, but ultimately it's the work of the Holy Spirit to do the convicting, not you. Amen? And so sometimes, sometimes we should take our foot off the gas pedal. Sometimes we need to put it on. Let the Holy Spirit convict you on that. But remember, it's his work to do concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Verse 10, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Righteousness, it's not just the moral standard. It's a, it's a right living. It's right relationship between God, self, and others. That's righteousness. It's when things come into alignment and the way that we were created to flourish is how we live. And so Jesus is saying he is the perfect example of righteousness. He is the visible image of righteousness. And he's saying the Holy Spirit will now come to help us understand righteousness because Jesus, the perfect image of righteousness, the perfect man, the only right man who had perfect relationship with God, self, and others, he's ascending to heaven. And that visible example of righteousness is now gone from our midst, but he's sending the Holy Spirit who will make you and I righteous. He's sanctifying us. He's making us like Christ. And then verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. It is finished. Satan is defeated. However, he's still kicking and screaming. Verse 12, I have said I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I love that. And, and the same is true for you and I. So again, sometimes let your foot off the gas pedal when you're trying to get other people to believe everything about God. Like, take it in steps. Take it in stride. None of us can bear all of who God is and what God has to say in one moment. It's overwhelming. He says, I have, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I ascend to the Father. The spirit of truth comes and, and he will help you understand truth, what is right, what is good, what is lovely. Not all of your own intellect, not all of your own study, not all of your moral do-goodings, the spirit of God. You're dependent on him I'm dependent on him to understand God's truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and, and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so Jesus here is preparing the disciples and you and I, 2,000 years later, for this tension that we will experience between having the Holy Spirit living and active in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you and I. Isn't that incredible? It's what the Bible teaches. The same power, the power of God at work in the Holy Spirit, the same power by which Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life is at work in us. That's incredible power. And yet, the tension in belonging to the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of the world is that that power doesn't preclude us from persecution and suffering and being ostracized and being kicked aside and being discarded. And in some cases many cases, being martyred, persecuted to the point of death. 
And so, American church, we need to have in our mind this category. Not, oh, those poor persecuted Christians around the world, I hope that they get freedoms like us. No. Not taking our freedoms for granted, but then also not having an expectation that we would have them all of our lives because that's not the norm. The norm is persecution. The norm is suffering. And there's a tension here between the power of God at work in us and the reality that we will be persecuted. Look at verse 2 again of 16. Jesus says, they will put you out of the synagogues. The religious powers and the political powers together will displace the people of God from their houses of worship. Praise God that's not our case right now. It might be our case in the future. In fact, it's very likely someday it will be. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Don't be surprised when you face trials of various kinds, fiery trials. And so what I want to do now for a little bit this morning is just see how this plays out. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. I want to I I do a quick overview of the book of Acts and just see how Jesus' preparation for the disciples is played out upon his ascension, okay? So what we're going to do, I need you to flip with me to see these passages for yourself. Go to Acts chapter 1. Keep in mind what Jesus just said. They will put you out of the synagogues, and whoever kills you, they will, they will think that they're offering service to God. And so let's see how this power of the Holy Spirit, actually what he does is he empowers us to suffer, not to retaliate. And I think there's a good reminder for us American Christians who have had some power, had some prominence, had some cultural majority and influence. After all, it says, on our money, in God we trust. I think it's a good reminder for us to to just pause and say, the power that God gives us through the Holy Spirit is not the power to fight back and to retaliate and to protect our rights. It's the power to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. All right, so let's see how this plays out. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, this is the disciples with Jesus after his resurrection, before his ascension, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They wanted worldly power. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, they still are missing the point. They're still not understanding what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. They still want worldly power and prominence and prestige. They think that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, will be be a top-down thing. When Israel is restored as as a world power, then we can let the world know that Jesus is the Messiah. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power. There it is. Power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. Not my soldiers. Not my informants. My witnesses. You will open your mouth and you will proclaim and testify to the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And and then jump to chapter 2. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we could spend all day talking about the role of speaking in tongues, and we're just not going to. There's some power happening here. God is doing something supernatural. The Holy Spirit has descended upon the people of God. He's giving them a supernatural power. And in context, in, the, in what's happening here in Jerusalem, is that there's a melting pot of all these different languages, and God is empowering them through the Holy Spirit to speak languages that they hadn't studied. They didn't have the Rosetta Stone. They didn't go to language school. Just like that, they were able to speak languages that they didn't know or study so that they could communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to people in their native tongue. Some power. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, and and all the onlookers are like, these people are crazy. They must be drunk. Peter stands up with the 11. He lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which is 9 a.m. I think it's funny that his excuse isn't like, well, we're pious followers of Jesus. He's just like, no, it's 9 a.m. They're not drunk yet. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so then Peter in the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to take Old Testament prophecy and he is going to make it clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy, that he is the Messiah. This is power at work. The Holy Spirit present in his people, powerfully proclaiming the word of God, making Jesus known to the people. Look at verse 36. And this is towards the end of his sermon. I'm not going to go through Peter's whole sermon here and. Acts chapter 2, towards the end, verse 36, it says, Let all all the house of Israel know, uh, Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom he crucified. It's a gospel-centered sermon. Here's who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. You need to know who he is and that he's been crucified. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and to the rest of the brothers, the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to to them, repent and be baptized. Baptism, going into the water and coming up out of the water is a sign of death to sin, death to the old man, death to the old woman, and new life in Christ. We get to celebrate that second service. You're welcome to stick around. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He didn't say fight this crooked generation. Use your religious power to change this crooked generation. Use the political, and it was a different political system in this day than it is in our day. So there's, there's nuance, right? There's tension. There's conversations that can be had. But notice, he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Be in the world, but not of the world. It's not your job to enforce godly morality onto the world. It's your job to, to save yourself, to trust God, to let the Holy Spirit transform you. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen? Incredible power. Like this massive movement of people gaining steam, gaining influence, the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, And as the numbers grow, their power grows, like the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and as you know, like if you've ever been a part of like a little uprising, like maybe at your school, like you signed a petition, right? And the more names that you get on the petition, the more power you have. You're like, oh, the, the school people, I don't even know how petitions work. The school people, who are the school people? The administrator, they're listening now. Look at all these students with their petition. We've got a lot of names. There's some power here. There, there, there's this growing power to numbers, And so the religious establishment and the political parties in the first century start to get nervous about this power that the followers of Jesus have as they're gaining number, but it's a power of the Holy Spirit to lay down their life, not to use force to enforce the gospel. And and let's continue to see this play out. Verses 42 through 47. I'll I'll just read this. What time do we have? I got a lot to cover still. All right, I'm going to read this real quick. Just look at, this is the kind of power that the Holy Spirit gives us. This is supernatural, uncommon. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship. That's koinonia. That's like real relationship where you take your mask off and you're real and honest with people. You don't pretend, you don't project, you don't hide. That's, that's some Holy Spirit power right there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Amazing power. This type of community. Verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, multitudes of people coming to know Jesus, growing in number. This movement is growing in influence and power. It's a power from the Holy Spirit that's doing the supernatural stuff that can't be done naturally. Like our systems, our agendas, our efforts, our ministries, our programs can't do this kind of stuff. Just because you have a community group ministry, does it always produce this kind of fruit? This is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his church. Um, I'm going to skip. I don't want to. I'm going to do it quick. (laughs) Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something, wanting some money. But Peter said, I have no silver and I have no gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Power, power, power. I love that. The right answer isn't always to give somebody physical, monetary needs. Sometimes it is. I don't know. Let the Holy Spirit lead you in that. But in this case, they didn't have silver. They didn't have gold. What they had was the power to heal a lame man. And this man came to know Jesus as a result of that. And so there's this growing number, this growing influence, power of the Holy Spirit at work, but then also the power of a movement. And again, the power of a movement which will bring extreme persecution. And so next we're going to see, I'm not going to read through the rest of chapter three, but there's going to, there's going to be some rising tensions here. Look at chapter four, verses one through four. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So growing in power through the Holy Spirit, growing in number, also growing in angering the religious and political leaders of the day. And now they're being arrested and thrown into prison. See how the power of God in the Holy Spirit doesn't mean absence of trials, but in fact, increases trials, increases pressure, increases pushback. And so through Acts chapter four, we're going we're gonna to see this tension. They're, they're thrown in prison and then they're questioned. Look at, look at verse 13. As they're in prison, it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You might be an incredibly intellectual, capable person, or you might be incredibly not intellectual and feel incapable here this morning. It doesn't matter. The power of the Holy, of Holy Spirit at work in and through you can radically transform your life and other people who watch you. They were uneducated common men. They weren't the elites. They didn't go to university. They didn't have master's degrees. They didn't have doctorates. They didn't have a podcast. And if they had a podcast, nobody listened. It was like one of those podcasts, like the mom and, and grandpa followed it. Like, hey, good job. Or actually, probably not, right? Like, well, I listened to your podcast again, and you said all these things, and I want to pick it apart. They've got no following. They're uneducated common men but people are astonished because they recognize that they had been with Jesus. This is the power of God at work. And the tension here is they're being persecuted even as this power, even as this love, this supernatural love and this supernatural proclamation of the gospel is going forward. It's increasing their persecution. I want to just spend a couple minutes looking now at Stephen and Saul who becomes Paul as we close out our time together this morning in the Word. 
look at Acts chapter 6. And so Acts 4 and 5 continue, and God's doing incredible things. There's power, there's signs, there's miracles, there's proclamation of the word, there's pressure and persecution from the religious and political powers. And, and then in Acts chapter 6, there's, there's an argument among the church about the widows being neglected, and then they figure out how to do that. It's an incredible thing. They appoint some people as deacons to serve, and, and one of those is named Stephen. And pick it up in John, uh, I mean Acts. That's right, we're preaching John, but we're in Acts this morning. <laughs> Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, one of the appointed deacons, says, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Power. Power of God at work. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Power of the Holy Spirit, of Holy Spirit at work, and pressure from society, from the institutions of the world. This is the tension of being in the world, but not of the world. Power and persecution. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will, Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Power and persecution. You feel the tension here? And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And then he goes into this long sermon empowered by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 7. I'm not going to read the whole sermon. I encourage you to sometimes. It's fascinating. He just unpacks how Jesus is the Messiah, the promised deliverer of Israel. And so he unpacks this sermon. Flip over to the next page now and look at chapter 7, verses 4. 54 through 83. It says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. The end of the sermon. The response from the world, the religious leaders and the political leaders who are in the world and of the world. Here, here's the key point for us. Remember, as followers of Christ, we're in the world but not of the world. All of the response where the persecution comes from is from people, both religious and political institutions that are in the world and of the world. Their response is harsh. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, stoning, if you're unfamiliar with the biblical times, it's, it's where someone's dragged out into public and they throw, literally, just throw rocks at the person until they die. 
One rock after another, hitting the skull, crushing the skull, dead in the street, stoning. As they were stoning Stephen, verse 59, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't fight back. He's got the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's got the power of thousands of people backing him and behind backing him and behind him as they've been transformed by the ministry of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does Stephen do? The power of God at work in him, the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't make a defense. It's fascinating. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's being wrongly murdered in the street, stoned to death. And his posture towards his persecutors is to say, Lord, don't hold this against them. Are you kidding me? How many of us would be like, God, get them. Hey, Stephen, or I'm Stephen, right? Hey, Peter, James, John, Andrew, do something about, fight back. Remember Peter in the Garden of of Gethsemane with Jesus? He pulls out the sword and cuts off the guy's ear. Like, what a bad soldier. No wonder he wasn't part of the soldier. Like, he hits a guy's ear. Come on, dude, get him in the heart. Decapitate him. That's what you're trying to do. You miss God. Like, this is the human impulse. Retaliate, protect, fight back. And the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the midst of persecution, this is Stephen's heart. And where do you think he learned this? What did Jesus say upon the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here Stephen is saying, Lord, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, which is a nice way of saying he died in the street from the stones. Verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. Do you remember when Jesus said in John chapter 16 that those who kill you will think that they're offering service to God? Saul is a Pharisee, a religious leader who thinks he's offering service to God as he approves of the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. There will come a day, Jesus says in John chapter 16, when they will pull you out of the synagogues and those who kill you will think that they're offering service to God. We're seeing it happen here. And Saul is one of the key players. There's incredible power of the Holy Spirit and persecution, and they're using the power of God to to willingly give up their lives. But if you're familiar with the biblical story, you know what happens. If you're unfamiliar, let's find out. Look at Acts chapter 9. But Saul, 
still breathing murderous threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Jesus, the way, truth, and life, they were known as followers of the way, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. Remember, he was heading to Damascus to persecute the Christians and kick them out of the synagogues. And now he's led to Damascus as a blind man. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And then as the story goes, Saul sees Jesus and hears from Jesus and becomes a follower of Jesus and writes two-thirds of our New Testament why, church family? Because there's a tension between the power of God at work in us and real persecution that comes upon followers of Jesus who are willing to live in the world but not of the world. God broke through into Saul's life, drew him to himself, transformed his life. And I can't help but wonder, how did Stephen willingly accepting death, opening up his hands, giving away his life, saying, Lord, do not hold this against them. And Saul standing by and watching that. And Saul fearing for his own life. Yeah, he's, he, he has religious power and political power, but Stephen's got a movement of people. An angry mob can do a lot in a moment. And instead of mobilizing as an angry mob, Stephen lays down his life. The power of God at work in him in the midst of persecution means he lays down his life in a like fashion to Jesus, his Savior, who had said in John chapter 15, Greater life has no other than this, that someone lays down his life for a friend. And so church family, the call for us this morning is to be people of self-sacrifice. To embrace the, the, the tension of power and persecution by allowing the power of God to work in us in such a way where we wouldn't fight for our rights, but we would say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done and I'm willing, I'm ready to suffer and to endure hardship and persecution for the name of Jesus. As we close this morning, I just want to read a quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. We'll transition to communion and close. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering which every man or woman must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man or woman, which is the result of his or her encounter with Christ. 
As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him or her to come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go into the world. Or, end of quote from Bonhoeffer, a question for us, or it may be the daily death of our agendas, our comforts, our control, our ideals, our idols, our power, our preferences, our opinions, our politics, our fill-in-the-blank. But we die in good company, church family. Christ died and rose again, giving assurance that our death in Christ leads to new and abundant life in Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for leading the way in the tension between power and persecution, that you had the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. And under persecution, that power allowed you to willingly give up your life. And God used that act to create a movement so powerful that 2,000 years later, we are on a different continent, in a different language, a different culture, still talking about it. What an act of love. So Lord, I pray that you would transform us, that we would come into the table this morning being reminded that you gave your life, that true Christian power is to give to the point of death. And so we come to the table this morning to receive your gift of death and resurrection, death to the old way and life in a new way. And nourish us now with these elements, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.